Hello and welcome to the Why Behind the What. My name is Nathan Albert, and as always, I am so glad you are listening to this podcast. As I shared with you last week, I am pausing my previously scheduled episodes to spend a few weeks talking about whiteness, systemic racism, and how we, especially as white people, can dismantle the racism in our culture. Last week, I gave a metaphor about how digging up vines and weeds in my backyard became an apt metaphor for me for how I think we as white people need to dig up the roots of racism that are utterly pervasive in our culture. Over the next couple weeks, I'll be interviewing a few friends on the topics of whiteness and racism to hear their reactions to the racial violence we've been seeing across our country. I'll have a few pastors, authors, professors, some friends, all of whom are wiser than I will ever be. But today, I'm excited to share with you my interview with pastor and author David Swanson. David is the pastor of New Community Covenant Church in the historically black neighborhood of Bronzeville in Chicago. He's also the author of the newly released book, Rediscipling the White Church, From Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity. In this conversation, we talk about how white people are often complicit to racist systems, that the answer to racial segregation in our churches is not simply diversity, but it's actually discipleship. We talk about unlearning the narrative we have come to believe, that we can relearn the truth of our history so we can begin the work to repair and reform not only the church, but our entire society. With every question he answered during this interview, I kept thinking, yes, that's right, yes, oh, this is what we need to do, yes, we need to hear this. And so if you are white and someone who considers themselves a part of the Christian tradition, I think not only should you listen to this episode and probably listen to it a couple times, but you need to go out and buy David's book. I think this is the type of conversation that we as white people need to be having with each other. And I think his book, having read it, is really going to be a great start and introduction for many of us in the white community. I truly believe that David is a voice that every white Christian needs to listen to. He is pastoral, he's prophetic, and I think he is and will continue to be one of the key leaders helping white people unlearn and relearn their history, as well as we work to become dismantlers of white supremacy. You can learn more about David on his website. It's dwswanson.com. There you can sign up for his weekly newsletter. You can buy his book. You can also find links to his social media. I've also included all those links and resources David has recommended in the show notes, as well as on my blog, nathanalbert.com blog. If you enjoy this podcast, I do hope you'll share it with others. A like, a retweet, sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, it's a huge help. And I really want David's message to get out there. Also, if you could rate it on iTunes, all you got to do is tap the stars and hit submit in the Apple Podcast app on your phone. That's a great way to beat the algorithm and to help more people uh, become aware of this podcast. As always... This podcast was written, recorded, and edited on Monacan land. With that, here is my interview with David Swanson. Well, David, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're here. It's been a while since our days both in Chicago. Um, you're still there. You're still living it up, though. I am. In the greatest city in the world. 
I agree. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad that you still agree with that too. I do. I do. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what do you do professionally, uh, but then also a little bit about you personally. Who are you as just a fellow human being? Yeah. So, um, uh, my wife, Maggie and I have just celebrated 21 years, uh, a couple of days ago. So that's exciting. We have uh, two sons, uh, a 11 year old and an almost six year old. And so, you know, we have been riding out this uh, pandemic together, the four of us and getting a lot of time together, which has been really great. We, our practice has been to, to try, uh, to get away from the city one day a week. Uh, over these weeks. And so um, there's a Indiana National Lake Shore that's about 30, 40 minutes from us. So we do lots of hiking over there. And, you know, as the weather gets nicer, kind of playing around in the sand dunes. And that's been really good for us. I pastor a church that is uh, 10 years old, a new community covenant church. It's on the near south side of Chicago in a historically African-American neighborhood, a church that is uh, intentionally multiracial, um, relatively evenly distributed, uh, African-American, Asian-American, and white. And then uh, recently uh, wrote a book called Rediscipling the White Church from Cheap Diversity to True Solidarity that's available now. Awesome. We'll get into the book a little bit, but I'd love to hear how are you, I mean, we, we're in a pandemic and we're in a massive amount of protests and soon we'll be in an election cycle. Um, so 2020 is going real well. Um, but I'd love to hear how you are processing this, especially in your context, um, in your role as a pastor, um, and how, how you're reacting to what we see broadcast on news, social media, and even just down our streets from us. Yeah. I mean, I think for, for me, the two are connected, right? The two major things that I can at least remember of 2020 being the the pandemic and then these uh, these sort of very public instances of kind of racial terror that that we are now responding to they're, they're connected in that they both point to this systemic inequity racial inequity that our society has sort of taken for granted for forever since it's in it's since its inception and so personally I mean when the when the uh, when the pandemic really got close obviously we had to just adjust as a church and do all those kind of practical things but it became very apparent quickly that that there would be a disproportionate impact on uh on black communities and black people and that certainly has played out in our city and so folks here on the south side of chicago have experienced covid 19 in a just much more visceral and personal way than people in other neighborhoods in our own city. You know, you don't have to necessarily even go outside of the city to see that disproportionate impact. And, and then, of course, when we see, um, you know, Black people being murdered in these very kind of public televised ways, it again points to this gross uh, inequity, racial inequity, that kind of makes our, our society function to some extent. So I am a pastor, and so I think about how how can I pastor our congregation in a moment like this? We have people for whom, you know, maybe these ugly realities are somewhat of a new experience. And so how do we bring them along and contextualize some of this? But then we have other people in our church who have been living this, you know, forever and, and their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents before them. And that's a different uh, concern, obviously. What is it 
what does it look like to a pastor to, to be in solidarity with, to care for, to give space to uh, those whose you know grief is just incredibly personal uh, and kind of beyond expressing in words. Uh, and so, you know, that's a that's a big part of it right now is how do we as a congregation make the space for kind of deep lament that our, our culture at large doesn't necessarily have an imagination for. And frankly, many of our churches haven't had the imagination for either. Thankfully, you know, some have. But that's that's what captivates a lot of my my mind these days. I, you know, racism takes a bodily toll on people. It mm. it it elevates blood pressures, right? Like it 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 slows, it stops heartbeats. It's it's a very visceral experience. And so I don't know, man. I don't necessarily have answers for for how best to do that, but that's what's on my mind yeah. uh, in, in these days. Mm-hmm. You in your book, and I'll get to the main thesis in a in a little bit, but I want to go to one section in your book where you talk about and you introduce some other authors who frame this in divided by faith, but where you say white individuals generally, we as we as white people, we either think of race and racism on this individual level. Um, you know, oh, if I just deal with my sin, racism will end or a relational thing. Oh, I just need a black friend. And if we're good, racism's good and ended or this structural, you know, we don't see the systems. We don't see how it's woven through everything. Can you introduce that framework a little bit and then how you see that play out? Cause I just think that's so important, um, and I mean, you say this too in your book too, how much we have to see and know our history. And I think that's a, a good way to start. Yeah. So all credit to, you know, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith and their book Divided by Faith, which is two decades old now and unfortunately still very, very, um, you know, prescient. I, they, they talk about uh, white evangelicalism. I, I actually would extend that just to white Christians in general. Um, uh, Jennifer Harvey has done some really good work here. Um, and she's writing from more of a, you know, progressive mainline perspective, and kind of confirms some of the stuff that that Emerson and Smith see in more conservative white Christian spaces. So, so I, I actually try to speak to to white Christianity as a whole in this. And we do have these instincts. One is to individualism, to to understanding um, the kind of realities around us through this very individual lens. It's very hard for us to think socially. We've been socialized to think of ourselves as autonomous individuals. Uh, this relational piece is really deeply embedded in, in white Christian spaces. Uh, and in part, this is due to our theology. We have been given a theology that says that our salvation has been accomplished by you know, the death and resurrection of Jesus, saving individual sinners from something into something else. We don't necessarily have an imagination theologically for something bigger, um, uh, more cosmic than that. And then anti-structuralism is this sort of third defining attribute, which is that we are very wary of paying too much attention to the structures and the systems that support inequity because we're afraid then that takes the, the onus off the individual. And, and that that lean towards towards individualism says uh, you need to be responsible for your own destiny, right? So we love the rags to riches story. We love the pull yourself up by the bootstrap story. Um, those three instincts make it very difficult for white Christians. My, my guess is white people in general, but I'm speaking to, to what I know. 
um, to actually affect change when it comes to uh, systemic racism because you have to think corporately. You have to think beyond relationships and you have to examine, interrogate, and dismantle structures. And because we haven't done that, oftentimes white Christianity's attempts at racial justice have actually made things worse. We've ended up damaging people of color because we've kind of, you know, cast a vision for something. And then we end up saying, well, we're just actually fine that you're in the room with us. That's a win for us. Um, and then we we mess up the white people too because things don't go well. And, and then the white Christians say, well, we tried that one time. It didn't work. And so this, this must not actually be all that important. So I think any move forward has to take really seriously those three instincts and create some kind of a pathway that names those things and and then you know calls us to a different way of engaging in these these racial inequities. You mentioned or in your book, your kind of main thesis, which I think you kind of hinted at just a second ago, is that racial segregation really within Christian churches isn't a diversity problem, um, but it's a discipleship problem. So I'd love for you to introduce us to that. Um, because I think when I read that, I was it was not it's it's awesome. I was like, oh, this is not where I expected him to take this. But as I read the book, I completely you convinced me. Ah, yes, this is this is totally right. <laughs> so tell us what you mean by that thesis and then introduce us to why you make that point. Yeah. And I, I want to say that I, I do think for many of us who are white, it's a, it's a new way of thinking about this. I think for many of our sisters and brothers of color, it's probably sort of a, yeah, we've been trying to tell you this for a long time. So, you know, want to be clear about that too. Um, yeah. Th so, I, you, you know, you and I first met each other in the context of a, an intentionally multiracial church. I still serve in a congregation like that. So my heartbeat is for you know, multiracial, racial reconciliation, racial justice kinds of churches. Um, however, what I, I, I came to see was that a couple of things, you know, one, that oftentimes these sorts of churches actually end up perpetuating white culture. They're not multicultural. They're still culturally white. And there's all kinds of sociological reasons we can get into if we have time. Uh, but, but secondly, post uh, 2016 election, uh, once the the now president was in office and began enacting some of uh, his his rhetoric and policies, we saw his support among white Christians increase. Now, this was an interesting thing for me because many of the white Christians who had told me that they were going to vote for this man said we're doing so despite the the the, the rhetoric and the policies. And I would hear things like, "Well, he's not actually going to do any of that of that stuff." And and so what we found is when he actually started to do that stuff, they liked him even more. And I remember kind of reading some polling numbers and, and for the first time thinking about the fact that, that these white Christians who are supporting this man who's now implementing these very destructive policies, policies that are going to be hurting sisters and brothers in Christ who share faith but not race with these white Christians, that these white Christians are sitting in church every Sunday, that they're a part of you know Bible studies and small groups and sing on worship teams, et cetera. And so I, I started to ask, well, how... Who's discipling these, these women and men? You know, what kind of formation is, is happening for them? So I've taken these two things together and realized that while many white churches have thought of multiracial ministries as sort of the way forward, we've actually not ever had conversations about the, the sort of discipleship that has led to this dysfunctional segregation in the first place. And so you try to add a little bit of racial diversity to that. And again, the, the, 
it's, it's predictable where that's going to go, the damage that's going to be done. Um, and so it just more and more, I was convinced that as much as I love multiracial ministries, what our white churches need first is to start asking really difficult questions about the spiritual formation, about the discipleship practices that have left most white Christians very content in our segregation and complicity with racial injustice. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit more about, you know, I think the 2016 election was such a turning point for Christians, for racial injustice, for, like you said, some of these policies that are now were just words a few years ago are now becoming reality. What was kind of, why is there such, or what is the divide of those Christian, white Christians who celebrate that election, and yet the pain that has caused other white Christians, but other in general? I mean, it's such a divided election, but such an important date. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've thought about this a lot, and I, I'm probably not the best person to give a kind of a, a, a good answer about that because I'm biased. Um, you know, I'm, I'm located in a, in, a, in a black neighborhood in a multiracial church, right? So I, I do have that lens and I should be honest about that. But that was sort of the haunting question to me. You know, why, how is this possible? And I've, I've come to believe that many, if not most white Christians, share more in common with other white people who don't share our faith than we do with, you know, those Christians of color who do share our faith. I don't say that flippantly. I think that's a massive indictment on, you know, white Christians and white churches. But I do think that that's, that's how I've come to interpret this moment, um, that we have been more formed racially than we have been formed by the faith we share across race and ethnicity and culture. So when I've, you know, tried to have these conversations with, you know, kind of the fervent supporters of the president, what I often am told is, you know, I'll share things like, hey, I, I, I know you might not have these relationships, you know, where you're hearing the sorts of concerns or real life experiences that are being shaped and impacted by, by you know, this, this political moment. But, but let, me, let me tell you a little bit about that. Let me share with you some of, and what I have often been told as well, you know, they, they don't, they don't really understand or, you know, they don't really get it. And the, it's an instinct to, to kind of narrate with authority someone else's experience. So it's an instinct as a white person to say, I actually know better than you what's good for you, which is just, I mean, how gross is that, right? I mean, it's just it's horrible, right? Um, and yet that's, I think that's a, that's actually an expression of the racial discipleship that white people undergo completely unknowingly, right? We are formed in this country to think of ourselves as the experts, to think of ourselves as the kind of cultural and ethnic neutral upon which everybody else can be placed and then judged and ranked. And so it's ugly to say that really, you know, say that out loud, but I actually do think that that's, that's what's happening. So until we get at that, the kind of stuff we see around this election in white churches is going gonna, is conti gonna to continue to happen because, again, white people are being sort of left in this dysfunctional racial discipleship that has really separated them from the rest of the body of Christ. Yeah. You mentioned, too, in your book about whiteness. I think I have it written down somewhere. Let me see. Whiteness carries with it the burden of history 
working to distract us from the ugliness of that history, and it's working today. Um, and so what in, I'd love to hear personally your journey of what were the benefits, what were the costs of you to come to understand your whiteness and the history of your, of your race? Um, I mean, I, I was talking to a friend, a family friend who she feels like in this moment, she's been lied to her whole life, right? Like some of the history books that she's now reading or some of these uh, black authors that she's finally listening to and reading. She's like, I have been lied to in high school and college. And, um, you know, that's 15, 20 years ago. Um, and so she's starting to see the history, um, become, you know, that the emotion that comes with it. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey with that as well. Yeah. James Baldwin writes about this. I can't, I can't quote him exactly, but he says, you know, that, you know, white, white people are trapped in a history that we do not understand. And the reason for this is that to become white involves forgetting. It involves an intentional forgetting. None of us, when I say us, our ancestors arrived in this country as immigrants or refugees, white. They all had some other ethnic and, and cultural particularity uh, attached to them. And yet, very quickly, they understood that in order to become American, to, to, to attain as much of the American dream as possible, they needed to leave those things behind, shed those particularities in order to become white, in order to gain access to, to these promises. So there's an intentional forgetting that has to happen. And, you know, my own family, uh, there's some Swedish back there, you know, and my grandma would make Swedish uh, fruit soup on uh, you know Christmas, Christmas Eve. It's very delicious, actually, kind of a cold fruit soup, almost like a dessert. You know, but that's kind of it for me, you know, <laughs> that's my Swedishness, right? Um, but that's again, that's what it means to be white to some extent. So, so we exist in this history that we have forgotten and that we had to forget. And so we're not even aware of this, this burden of history that we carry with us. To your question, then it is a it is a, a sort of shock to wake up to that, right? Your, you know, your your family friend who's kind of like feeling lied to. Well, yeah, that's right. Now it's a lie that we're complicit with, right? On on some level, we've agreed to that lie to benefit from it. But it's a lie nonetheless. And so there is a shock of, oh, my gosh, I, I didn't see, I didn't know how, you know, and, and for some of us, there's some shame that comes along with that, some guilt. Um, and that's fine. That's part of growing up, I think. There's nothing wrong with that initially. You don't want to stay there. Um, the, the gift, of course, is that there's nothing better than the truth. Now, again, I'm speaking as a Christian person, and, you know, my faith is in the one who claimed to be the truth, right? So I, I think as Christian people in particular— we have no fear of the truth. And there's something incredibly freeing about being able to tell the truth, even when you have to admit your own complicity with a lie in order to tell that truth. So yeah, there's a burden to this, but you know, I always tell people like the further along this journey toward racial justice you get, the more impossible it is to turn around because it just is so good. It's so much better than what you experienced before, right? The community, the camaraderie, the solidarity, the giving your life to something really significant. I'm going to go back to what, right? To, to, to falling back asleep and pretending like none of this existed. No, as painful, as hard as it is, it's also way, way better. Yeah. And you make the point too, and this is all throughout the Christian scriptures, uh, to, to hear, to know your history, to remember. I mean, those words come up so often. Jesus says, see, see, see. Um, and that we do that with certain things, but we choose not to do that 
with others. And this is a perfect example of that. Yeah. Completely, completely. And, and you know, for, for as again, as a Christian, I just, I, I often just lament the ways in which we've, we've left the kinds of examples that you just shared. We've, we just kind of left them on the shelf. You know, they're, they're, they're right there. They're in our scriptures. They're part of the tradition. And yet we've, we've just, kind of turned away from them. So it's not even like we have to go outside of our faith tradition. I really believe as a Christian person, there's an entire logic for this sort of justice and reconciliation embedded within our scriptures, embedded within the Christian tradition. We we just have been conditioned not to see it. I, I've, I've had people on social media the past couple of weeks tell me that any, had somebody message me saying, any definition of reconciliation that requires justice is... Um, I can't remember the word he used, but is a is a lie from Satan. And I thought, well, now that's interesting, you know. And and I don't know this person, you know. He seems like a respectable, you know, middle class, educated person. I think he's saying this in good faith, you know. He's not trying to pick a fight. He's not. I mean, he's very very wrong. But boy, what sort of ecosystem have we constructed where that is true for us? And how much of the scriptures have we had to just completely ignore to believe that something like that is right? I want to follow up with that because, you know, it's interesting some of the conversations I've had in the last couple of weeks as well, some from white people saying, I don't believe in systemic racism and injustice to, um, you know, this is just a violent protest. It's all the protesters fault. Um, you know, well, I mean, I remember I had a congregant who said incredibly racist things about Michael Brown and that he deserved, he deserved it. Um, and so how do we, or what is your advice to other white people who want to respond to some of those phrases of, yeah, well, I don't believe in white supremacy or white privilege, or I don't, there is no systemic racism. I don't see the, I don't see the statistics. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of how do you have that conversation? Cause I hear too, from even students, I don't want to have this conversation with my parents. Well, that doesn't cut it anymore. Precisely. So I, I have a couple thoughts that are, I don't know how helpful they are. I, I do think there's a difference between somebody like there's a, it's, it's the, it's the question of good faith, right? What, what, what is the person's uh, posture as they come to you with these kinds of questions? Because because they can come with really hard, even racist questions, and yet actually be coming to you in good faith. Mm. It sounds like a weird thing to say, but like if this person grows up in a racist environment, that's been their 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 worldview. Doesn't mean that there's not an opening there, a possibility for change or for conversation. You know, likewise. You can be somebody who's got a very kind of, you know, in, racially enlightened progressive worldview and, and see yourself in this very self-righteous way that closes you off from, from any possibility of, of growth or change. So I'm really interested in discerning whenever possible, you know, what, what is this person's posture? If there's any openness at all, if there's any humility at all, I'm, I'm in. I don't care where you are in that journey. You know, I don't care how whatever kind of, you know, racist your, your background is, if you're open as another white person, that's my responsibility to, to, to be with you in that place. On the other hand, if the posture is one of antagonism, attack, you know, defensiveness, shutting down, I'm not going to actually spend a whole lot of time with that person. I'm not going to 
block them. I'm not going to mute them. I'm not going to like reject them completely. Like I, I want to hope that maybe something I say or a conversation I have with somebody else is helpful for that person. But um, I think there's too many people who actually are open that we want to be prioritizing. That again, I, I'm thinking about your student. Like, I'm, I don't want to talk about this with my parents. No, no, that's not what I'm saying, right? Like, we make our position very clear. We speak the truth whenever we can. And maybe your parents are open, maybe they're not, but we don't get to not speak about very important things like this um, based on somebody's openness. But it, when we get to that point of conversation and, and debate, then I really am interested in, in, in a person's starting point in their posture. And I've been, I got to say, I've been surprised a lot of times. I've been, I get convicted about this because I'm, I'm, I'm writing people off left and right, you know, like, ah, you're never going to change. And then I'll get a message from somebody like, hey, I just want you to know I was here and I'm here. I'm not there, but I'm not where I was. I'm like, wow, that's, that's not nothing, right? Like that's, there's some growth and movement there. So I think we don't, we never want to write people off, particularly as white people engaging with other white people. That, that's yeah. our responsibility. Yeah. I want to go back to your book a little bit. Um, because you're talking about true solidarity um, and how often we don't or we're not in true solidarity. And you lay out um, a handful of practices and ways of forming ourselves and our communities um, so we can experience true solidarity. Can you kind of give us an overview of those? And then also, is there one or two that you think are a, are a primary or needs to be done first or... Yeah. So the, the idea in the book was that I, I wanted, I wanted pastors, ministry leaders, lay leaders in their congregations to, to not feel like, okay, we got to throw everything out and start totally again. Um, I, I, I wanted instead, again, taking into account individualism, relationalism, anti-structuralism, how do we think about corporate practices that are actually beginning to address systems and structures and lead away from segregation and, and racial injustice towards solidarity? The, you know, our churches, all of them stand in a long line of particular discipleship practices. Some of us are very aware of that. Others of us, we don't necessarily talk about it that way, but they're happening, right? We, we gather for, for worship these days over the internet, but we still gather for worship. You know, there's, there's preaching traditions. There's, you know, the service at the table around, you know, the Eucharist and, and, and so on. And so I, I wanted to First of all, to lift these up and say, these are not just things we do. They're actually changing us. They're actually forming us. As we participate in these things together, they're changing our habits. They're changing how we imagine the world. That's a good thing. It's just that we've not had an imagination for how much they could change us because we have, we have left out what I call the, the kind of racial discipleship of our culture. We have not allowed these formational practices to actually begin reforming us at, at the very deep levels and, and pointing us to solidarity with the body of Christ. So again, don't start a whole bunch of new activities. Don't, don't even start a like racial reconciliation ministry. That that you know, maybe at some point, right? Certainly don't try to get your your all-white church to become multiracial tomorrow. Like don't don't do any of those things. Instead, could we think about things like preaching, you know, like sharing our faith, like children's ministry and say, what, what would we need to, to tweak here? How could we reimagine this so that we're starting to form a different kind of people? You know, so to your question about some that, that are elevated for me, and none of these are prescriptive, right? I tried to suggest some just to get the imagination sure. going. I think churches and ministries will think of a, a ton more. Um, one is children's ministry. 
I often think as white people, we have not thought about our kids in, in this conversation. And yet, if I were to start anywhere, it would be there. There's this really warped assumption that that white Christians make that, you know, racism is going to naturally get better with younger generation. And I, that's just not going to happen. That's not how racism works, you know. And as a Christian, I would say that's not how sin works. Um, and so, and yet we have this opportunity with our children who are interpreting and navigating the world at very young ages to, to, to begin to, to lead them to something different, to not abandon them to the racial discipleship of our society. And so I think there's lots of little ways that a, a ministry could start to ask questions about how are we discipling our children? Are our children developing an imagination early on about the body of Christ to which they belong, about who has authority in that body, about whose voices they should be listening to, about who who they can give their own life uh, you know, for to, to support and to encourage, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's one. The other one for me is Holy Communion. Because man, I mean that's central for our churches, right? Whether you you recognize the Eucharist weekly or or, or monthly, we we do this because this is the sacred meal for the church, um, and 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 yet, again, because of individualism, oftentimes when we come to table as white Christians, we're doing so through this very individualized experience. I'm considering, have I sinned against anybody? Have I sinned against God? You know, how how is this meal being applied to my own life? Which is good, it's good. But, you know, the context of, of much of the Paul's writing about the Eucharist in, in the New Testament has to do with the church, with the corporate body, how the corporate body has sinned, has has neglected the poor, or who has, has brought in those kind of socioeconomic divisions to the table. The very kinds of things that we as white Christians do all the time, right? We, we don't come to the table and go, I'm really discontent with the racial segregation in our church right now as a, you know, as a, as a sin against God and against the church. We're not, we're not, we haven't been formed to think that way. Right. And yet I think, again, it's all there in the scriptures for us to start to feel that a little bit more. So we could go on and on about this, but those would be the kinds of questions we can start asking about the practices we already do to pull out some of the latent potential to reform us. Yeah. One of the things I love in these chapters is you, you do a great job of bringing up these, these theological themes, practices, but then you interweave things like you have a whole section on white privilege, not in your white section privilege, but in one of our practices and how that can inform our privilege. Or even in the children's ministry, you had a section talking about how just because we're around other races now doesn't mean we're in a just racial society. Um, and naming the, naming that, um, through those practices. And another thing I really appreciate is your, and you highlighted a little bit earlier, but you say all of our churches can do this. Um, even if we're a rural church in Iowa or um, an all white church in Maine, wherever it might be, these are practices that we can do to stand in true solidarity, even if others that are in our church are all white. That's right. Um, and I think it is a really helpful, helpful framework for people who, or it goes against the individual relational aspect that we've, we've often said that this is the way we fix this problem. And I think it's, it's hopeful, right? Like it doesn't, you know, for that solo pastor in a small church, Hey, there's still hope. You can still do this work. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you had this experience, Nathan, but I know like being in multiracial churches, I would talk with other pastors and they would say things like, man, I really love what you're doing. I think racial reconciliation is so important. 
I just can't really do anything about that because my context, my community, yeah. my congregation is just, is mostly yes. white. And I, you know, I have to, I'm sadly have to confess that for many years, I kind of nodded my head in agreement, you know, and this for me is a pretty significant paradigm flip. It's saying, you know what, the, the issues of racism, white supremacy, racial injustice are not over there in the urban center, in the multiracial mm -hmm. church. They're actually primarily located in our mostly white spaces. Once we understand that, that's a hard truth to swallow. So I know we'll lose some people trying to get there. But if you can get there, then all of a sudden it gets really good. Because now you're not secondary to this process. You're actually on the front lines. As a ministry leader in a, in a mostly white space, you are strategically located to make a much bigger dent in racial injustice than I am in a multiracial church. I, I really believe that, right? Like you have more influence and credibility where it really matters um, once you make that make that switch. So yeah, I, I, I hope that's true. I hope someone would read this and go, oh man, like I really matter in this work, you know, and I'm not here accidentally and I don't need to try to be somewhere else. I can actually make a big difference right here. Yeah. And I think a lot of, well, I'll, I'll say this for me. I think for a season I wanted to become woke. Like I, I was like, I want to say the right things and I want my friends of color to really say, yeah, you got it, Nathan. But instead, like, I don't, I don't want that at all. I actually think, and you, you frame this too, as you, you say, we've been malformed and deformed by our racial society, and we need to reform it. And so I'm just more convinced that as white people, this is our problem. It's our problem to fix. And our goal should be to be the dismantlers, to be the repairers, to be the, um, to be the people who are fixing what we started, our people started centuries ago. Um, and that's why, you know, I've seen some of these viral videos of protesters taking down statues of slaveholders and throwing them in rivers. And that, I mean, we can get into a whole nother topic there, but the symbolism behind that, that there are some white people who are saying no more, we're dismantling that, we're throwing it in the river, and we're going to do something better, we're going to repair it, I think is such a brilliant illustration for the work that we as white people have to do. And I think you... It's really good. Yeah, right? Um, and I think that's what you're getting at too with this book, is you're saying these are the practices we can do to reform, to unlearn, to relearn, and repair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I think so much of the language of wokeness when it's used by white people it ends up being more about me feeling good about myself. You know, it's like, okay, I, I, I'm not that person anymore. I'm one of the good white people. Yeah. And I, I think as Christians, one of the things that distinguishes white Christians ought to be our, our, our confession that we will never be fully woke. You know, yes. <laughs> we're always going to be waking up. Um, but yeah, to your point, I, I think that's the aim, right? We want to move from that. Okay. I feel better about myself too. I'm, I'm about this work of solidarity. I'm about giving myself to the work of repair in the world around me. And I don't need to even start that. I don't need to define that because there are people of color who've been about that work for generations. So how can I be a part of that? You know, okay, my assignment is to take down the statue. Cool. Let's get on that. Let's go take down the statue, right? Um, but that work is already happening all around us. The, you know, yeah. we, just, we just have to have the eyes to see it. Are there other... I mean, I know there are a lot of resources, but are there a handful of resources that you say these are essential 
start here or don't miss this book or this resource? Are there a handful of those? Yeah. So if I'm, if I'm recommending to, um, you know, white Christians books to read, I really, who are maybe earlier on in the journey, I'll, I'll, I'll say that I, I really like Tasha Morrison's book, be the bridge. Mm-hmm. Um, she's got a great organization, but she does really good work in that book. Uh, Daniel Hill's white awake is a really eye-opening one for white people coming to understand white identity. Uh, Drew Hart's book, Trouble I've Seen, is, I, I quote extensively there, um, Drew does amazing work, biblically, theologically, uh, tapped into the black you know, church tradition, I just think is, is really, really important. Um, my mentor, Randall Salta McNeil's book, Roadmap to Reconciliation, is a really practical resource for church leaders who are wanting to, to get into this work. Um, I always have to say, I learn more from James Baldwin than anybody else on this conversation, so uh, read his essays, read all of his essays uh, that you can get your hands on. Um, I can go on and on, but those are some good starting points. I yeah, think. those are good. And how can people get connected to you online or in the interwebs? Yeah, my website is dwswanson, dwswanson.com, and links to all the social stuff is on there. I try to send out a weekly uh, newsletter that folks can sign up for there as well. But yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you spending time. Um, talking. And I, I think your voice is so important uh, to fellow white people to help us unlearn and relearn um, and be reformed. Um, and to, I mean, even as you say, um, to repent and lament what we have done and participated in and being complicit in, but then also the work of not getting stuck there um, and moving forward to do the work of justice. Um, and um, yeah, I, it's it's a great book, and uh, you're doing some good work. So I appreciate you being on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, and yeah, I appreciate what you're doing here with this. So thanks a lot. And so, friends, as we move from cheap diversity to true solidarity, being rediscipled so we might become dismantlers of white supremacy and systemic racism, may you have peace, may you have calm, and may you have happiness.